Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Steve Fleming and I'm here with my co-host Caswell Barry. On Brain Stories we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where they think their field is going in the future. So today we're very excited because we're joined by uh, Professor Kate Jeffrey, who until very recently was a professor of neuroscience at UCL, but she's left us. And now she's the, uh, the head of the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at Glasgow University. Um, Kate's worked in many places and has had indeed several careers. Uh, originally, she was from New Zealand. She trained as a doctor before switching full-time to research science. Uh, she completed her PhD in Edinburgh with Richard Morris before moving to London to work with John O'Keefe. Broadly speaking, she works on spatial memory, mainly working with rodents, uh, and is interested in the factors that make place cells fire where they do. Questions such as what constitutes environmental context. Her work recently has sort of focused on three-dimensional space and its representations, and how we know which direction we're facing. Uh, and she's also involved in a number of projects linking science and art. Uh, welcome, Kate. It's fantastic to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Um, well, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. It's also, there's two things that are noteworthy about this as well. I believe you're our first guest who isn't actually at UCL now. It's something we always meant to do, but you you are <laughs> the branch leading outside. Plus, there's also another connection. I don't know whether you remember this. So uh, Kate was my PhD supervisor, but actually while I was a PhD student, Steve did a rotation in your lab and I tried to convince him that he wanted to work on grid cells and things like that, and evidently didn't do very well. So we've got the full, we've got the, the full family tree here. I feel like it's a, it's like a family reunion in some ways. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I, I consider that one of my great failures is, is not to be able to persuade uh, you to come and work on place and grid cells. <laughs> Phew, I thought you were about to say having me in your lap. <laughs> I was just saying to Caswell before we started recording that we might be starting a foray into rodent work in, in the lab. So it perhaps is coming full circle. Oh, and finally, it's taken fantastic. 15 years, but maybe I'm now becoming convinced. So we'll see. Anyway, it's not about me today. Yeah, yeah. It's about you. So. We play the long game, though. Don't worry. Um, so, Kate, we should we should focus on you. So, so maybe a good place to start is if you could just tell us about what you're working on at the moment or what, what you think is interesting in this field and what's, uh, you know, what the questions are that you are focused on. So, yeah, there are, there are so many questions. <laughs> um, so it began with place cells because um, when I was starting to do my PhD, I started learning about place cells and I got very, very interested in this idea that these are a, um, kind of, they kind of represent the assembling of a thought in the brain of rat and therefore you know it seemed to me if we could understand them and understand how they create their representation that we would understand how thoughts are made you know or at least one one type of thinking perhaps we could just um start also just by defining giving giving the listener a, a brief definition of a place cell what it what it um does Sure. So place cells are single cells in the brains of rats that become active when the rat goes to a place. Um, and so um, when I discovered that these things existed, and they exist in the hippocampus, which has um, been very interesting for a long time because it's, of its involvement in memory, and uh, they were discovered by John O'Keefe. 
So, um, so I actually, when I was a PhD student, went to visit O'Keefe's lab and he showed me a place cell for the first time and I thought, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> um, so like, how does that cell know where the rat is type of thing? Um, so then the question became, how, how does the cell know? And that's really the question that's, that's driven me and a lot of other people ever since. And, um, and there's sort of two levels to the question. One is just the kind of anatomical physiological one of where does the information um, flow uh, through the brain on its way to the place cells. Um, and then there's a the more psychological question of, of what is the nature of the information that is telling place cells where to fire. And so I've been kind of working on both of those levels, both at the, the kind of the physiological and the psychological level. And for me, that, that kind of uh, inter interplay between physiology and psychology is, is just a really interesting place to be, and it's where um, I've stayed ever since. And, and practically, what do we know about what makes these things fire where they do? I mean, I guess, would it be fair to say this is sort of the, this is the cell-level representation of you knowing where you are in the world? Or indeed, a rat knowing where it is in the world? Or is there, or is there more to it than that? <laughs> Uh, well, that's one of the big unsolved questions. Is, is there more or is that how you know where you are? Um, or is there some other part of the, the brain that's, that's really where you know where you are? <laughs> um, or even is that a sensible question to, to ask? Is there anywhere in the brain that knows for sure? So, um, sorry, I've, I've forgotten the question. Um, what, what do we know about the things that actually tell uh, these cells where hmm. to fire? So there's lots of also levels to the answer to that question. So we know what the inputs are to the hippocampus and we know where they come from in the brain. So a lot of the inputs come from the primary sensory areas of the brain. So we know that the cells are using vision and olfaction um, and to a lesser extent they can use sound um, and touch. And so they're using all the senses. So in one sense we can say, well, the place cells know where the rat is because the sense organs tell it where it is. But that's not really a full answer to the question. But, like, the question really is how? is that sensory information turned into um, spatial, spatial representation. And the thing that's important about space that makes it different from other kinds of, of information is that um, there's, you kind of go through space, like you move through space. So you um, translate and you rotate, and you translate and rotate by certain amounts, quantities, that, that we call distances and directions. So that's kind of quite an abstract uh, conceptual idea. So, so the question for the brain is, how do you represent distances and directions in the brain? So turn this more kind of um, pattern of pixels that are coming into the eyes and so on. How do you turn that into something spatial that's got distance and direction? So we, um, we know that the place cells do get information about the distance that the rat has traveled and the direction in which it's traveled. A lot of work, some of it from um, O'Keefe's lab and, and colleagues, many colleagues at UCL, including you and me and, and many others, and, and lots of people um, all over the world, really. It's been a very big enterprise to try and pull all of this apart. We know that the boundaries, certainly in rats and mice, the boundaries of the environment are really important for helping to anchor player cells. So, in other words, it looks like uh, a particular cell will, will get some type of information about how far... Um, the animal is away from the, the east wall of its environment, let's say, or something like that. So, um, so we know that the cells are getting this kind of spatial information that's got distances and directions and these metric quantities. 
Uh, so then we sort of step back and go, well, what's the form that that information comes in? And uh, it seems to be coming in from the parts of the brain that are, again, taking in sensory information and extracting the spatial information so that they can pass it to the place cells. And one of the big discoveries that came along, in fact, when you were uh, in my lab, was the discovery of grid cells by, by the Moser lab in Norway. Uh, and these are cells that track how far the rat has walked, essentially, to put, to put it crudely. Um, and that was a very, very exciting discovery because that was uh, the first, well, one of the first really explicitly uh, spatial signals that was found in the brain. Um, and then the other really big spatial signal that's been tremendously important, which is the thing that I'm really interested in at the moment, is the sense of direction. Like, how does the system, the brain and, and the rat and everything, how do they know which way it's facing? So if you want to, to go you know, somewhere else and you know that that location is north of here, which way is that? You know, and, and how do you know? How does your place sound? No, and so, on. so those are the kind of questions that, that I've been working on a lot. You know, the sort of where are you and um, how do you know which way you're facing and, and where do you want to go? And I find one thing that's just so fascinating about this area is that these cells, when you see them, they are almost by definition abstracts because they're picking out points in a in a in a spatial environment that is formed by three dimensions that we we move through but there's nothing necessarily driving them as a stimulus feature and perhaps we can talk a bit about how you interact with the feature of the environment but I, i'm wondering how this then um interfaces with this notion that we have some kind of metric space and i'm thinking here about the work you've done in three dimensions Place cells kind of anchored to what we need for navigation, which I guess for a rat and for a human is largely two-dimensional, or are they somehow tracking the three-dimensional metric space that is kind of given to us by physics? Yeah, that's that's a good question, and that's one that I've been interested in for, for quite a long time, because you could imagine it could be either of those things. So from the point of view of um, certainly a terrestrial animal like a rat you know, or, or a human, uh, that's just walking over the surface of the environment. You might not necessarily need a, a really fully three-dimensional map of space. You really only need to know about the ground that you have to cover. So it, so it could be a two-dimensional map or it could be kind of a, um, a folded three-dimensional map, if you like. So uh, it's, it's still, still kind of a plain, but the plain does have hills and valleys. So, so there is some limited information about um, up and down. Um, or, or maybe there's a fully three-dimensional map um, in which in which case you're tracking distances and directions in um, up and down as well as sideways. But there's a sort of a, there's a more fundamental question than that, and that, that's the extent to which the, um, the signal has what we call relational information in it. So if you just look at a single place cell, the place cell tells you where you are. So if you're recording from the brain of a rat and you've, you've got a particular cell at the end of your electrode and every time the rat goes into that place and environment, you can go, aha, I know where the rat is without even looking at it because <laughs> I can hear that that cell is active. It's, it's, quite, it's quite spooky, actually. It does feel a, a bit like mind reading. Um, but, and, and you can imagine the, you know, the rat walks all over the place and all of these different place cells are active. But if you were just listening to those cells and you didn't have any other information, you wouldn't yourself be able to build up a picture of the... Um, the space that the rat is walking around in. You would just know that cell A was sometimes active and then cell B was sometimes active and cell C was sometimes active and so on. 
And it's not until you've listened to the cells for a very, very long, long time that maybe you discover that when cell A is active, often B is active shortly afterwards and then C is active shortly after that. And so you're starting to understand that these places um, are connected, so they have a relationship to each other. Um, so I think the, you know, the picture that's kind of emerging um, is that the, maybe the function of the hippocampus is to understand these relationships between places. And it does that by experiencing the kind of sequences that, um, that the rat walks through when it's walking through space and you get sequences of place cells active. So, so you know, the picture of the, the internal map is very much one of not just knowing where you are at the moment, but of knowing where are the other places and how do you what's the best way to get to them from here. And that's where we're still relatively limited in our understanding. So we don't know whether uh, the large scale map is, whether it's also in the hippocampus where the place cells are or whether it's in other parts of the brain and, and the hippocampus kind of teaches those other parts of the brain. We're still trying to answer that question. I guess um, using this sort of backbone that you just described, if you think of place cells as things that just sort of associate locations together. I guess that naturally feeds into a lot of the work you've been doing where you've sort of extended extended the typical experiment from two dimensions to three dimensions. And you've done, I guess over, it's probably over the last 10 years now, a whole array of beautiful experiments sort of making rats do increasingly interesting things. Like I remember uh, seeing you talk about rats that were climbing sort of helical staircases, then climbing walls. And <laughs> I think finally there was an experiment where they actually went fully 3D and sort of were able to get through, or maybe it was mice, but get through this sort of three-dimensional cube. Do you see that sort of thing as just sort of the the natural sort of endpoint of uh, place cells? As in, you know, if you can associate places in two D, then you should definitely be able to do three D. And I guess more more importantly, do you think there's a limit on that? Like, if we could design a task where the animal moves in four D, whatever that looks like, would this system just adapt, or or what would happen? Yeah, yeah, that's an, an intriguing question. Yeah, so the so the um, results that we've got from these explorations into three dimensions have been not completely straightforward to interpret. And I think the starting point was, yes, the, the map, the internal map is probably three-dimensional and, and three dimensions is just a bit like two, but there's more of it type of thing. <laughs> um, so, and when people I think weren't very interested in these experiments at the beginning because the assumption was it was just like fleshing out a bit more of what we already no, but then when we started to dig into it, we realized that when you add another dimension, suddenly things get a lot more complicated because um, it's quite tricky to create a three-dimensional compass because you can, um, when, when you're rotating in space, it, it's very, very complicated to track um, how you've ended up when you've rotated in uh, three degrees of freedom instead of just the usual two. So... Um, to create a three-dimensional compass would be a really big job for the brain. You'd need a lot more neurons, for example. So uh, whereas we know that the, um, the compass for two dimensions just needs to be able to represent the 360 degrees that you might be facing. If you were going to have a three-dimensional compass, then it's 360 times 360, if you like. So it's, it's a very large number. Um, and there's all sorts of other kind of weird properties that three-dimensional space has. Like if you make um, a, a series of rotations... Um, it depends which order you do those rotations in, which way you end up facing. So the brain needs to be really careful about how it assembles all of that information about the different rotations that you're making. So the more we thought about the, the theoretical um, kind of basis of what it would take to make a three-dimensional map, the more we realized it was, it was 
quite a complex task. And so then we started to do the experiments. And we were hampered by the fact that rats don't swim or fly very easily in, in three dimensions, and it's quite difficult to record them. <laughs> I would love um, to see a flying and, rat. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've, got, um, we've now got bats. So, so there's an Ulanovsky lab um, in Israel has been studying bats, which really do seem like rats with wings in many ways. Um, and, and gratifyingly, they've been finding quite similar some results to some extent. Um, and of course, when we think about it, we, um, all of the vertebrates evolved from fish, which have a fully three-dimensional movement space. So it actually makes quite a lot of sense that, that the brain would be able to represent three dimensions. But, um, but in thinking about how the place and the um, head direction cells and then these other distance tracking cells, these grid cells, um, you know, in, in terms of how they do that, we just had to do the experiments and see. So the very first thing was to get rats uh, walking around a, a kind of a climbing wall. And we found that the, the place cells seemed to encode locations on the wall pretty similarly to how they would do on the floor. Um, and that fitted with some of the behavioral experiments that we did that showed that rats seemed to be able to find food that was located somewhere on the wall. So they seemed to be able to navigate and so on. And that seems sensible to us as well, because we know that rock climbers don't lose their sense of space just because they're climbing a rock instead of <laughs> walking around. So that was fine. Um, and then we, did, well, then we decided to record the grid cells, these, these distance tracking cells. And what grid cells do is they, they make this uh, very regular pattern um, over the surface of the environment. So when the rat is walking around, if you're recording a grid cell, you'll find that there's a place where it's active. And then when the rat walks on a certain distance, suddenly the cell stops being active. And then when the rat goes a bit further, the cell starts again. And then when it goes a bit further again, it stops and so on and so on. So if the rat walks in a straight line, there's this very regular periodic rising and falling of activity. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, if it's walking in one dimension. If it's walking in two dimensions, the really amazing thing is that this rising and falling uh, occurs in the two dimensions such that you end up with this really beautiful polka dot pattern um, of hexagonally arranged blobs, if you like. So these blobs are kind of the places where the cell would fire. Um, it's really amazing. It looks like a polka dotted tablecloth when you actually look at the data. And it, was, um, it was the discovery that the Moser lab made that really electrified um, the field and made us realize that there's a lot of distance information in the system. So we thought, what are the grid cells going to do on this climbing wall? And we thought, well, I thought, naively, <laughs> that there might be a polka dot pattern over the wall that's very similar to the polka dot pattern on the floor. That would have made sense because the place cells were doing their thing and so on. Um, and then I thought, you know, knowing my luck, that probably won't happen. What will probably happen is that the cells just won't know what to do on the wall and it'll all be a huge mess. But actually what we found was that the grid cells produce this really beautiful pattern of stripes where if you look at the horizontal component of, the, of, of how it's walking on the wall, so the distance that it's traveled parallel to the floor, you get this rising and falling, this, this periodic pattern. But if you look at um, how the rat's walking in the, in the vertical dimension, there isn't that rising and falling. And so the consequence of that is that you get stripes. So if there's a place in the horizontal space where the cell is supposed to be firing, then it will keep firing as the rat climbs up the wall at, at that location. And if there was a place where the cell is supposed to be quiet, um, it continues to be quiet. So the, the consequence is that as the rat's walking over this wall, there are all of these vertical stripes. So it looked very much as though the grid cells were interested in the distance that the rat walks on the horizontal plane, but not in the vertical plane. And so, so then we started thinking, does this mean that the map is not really three-dimensional, that actually it doesn't have a good representation of height above ground? 
Um, but then how do you explain how the place cells know what to do? And just, it was just all very confusing and, and puzzling. Um, so then we thought, well, maybe there's something about the, the way that the rats are climbing on the wall that's restraining the ability of the cells to track distances, because the rats were standing on little footholds, very much like a rock climber would. So, so they were um, holding onto these footholds, and because rats are quite small, they were actually able to stand so that the body was horizontal, so not, not flat against the wall like a human would be, but actually horizontal. And we thought maybe... Um, maybe that's affecting how the cells are able to track the vertical distance and, and it messes them up. So, um, so then we changed the environment and put chicken wire over the wall so that now the rats could climb very much more like a human rock climber would with, with their body flat against the wall and all four limbs on the wall. And suddenly we got the, the blobby pattern back. So there were no, no longer stripes. We now got blobs again. So that was cool. But the regular polka dot pattern wasn't discernible and the size of the blobs was far too big relative to horizontal so it sort of looked like the system was trying to track distances but um, its scale was kind of messed up um, so that was also quite puzzling and then finally we thought okay let's really put this to the test and create a situation where the rat can really fully explore the three-dimensional space and it took a long time to, to get that set up. We needed to have a way of tracking the rats in three dimensions. Uh, we needed to have an apparatus that they could move through in three dimensions, which was, you know, turned out to be this big kind of uh, jungle gym kind of apparatus, like, like those used to get in children's playgrounds um, before they decided it was too dangerous. <laughs> um, you know, it was sort of crisscrossing bars. <laughs> um, and so the rats could climb through these. Um, and we also developed wireless tracking uh, so that, um, we could record, sorry, wireless recording so that we could record the, the neurons. So, so now the rats could climb through this space and they weren't encumbered by recording cables and, um, and the camera could see them and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so when we recorded in this space, we um, weren't really sure what we were going to find. So we thought we might see a nice regular uh, packed lattice of these nice round kind of firing fields, these locations where the cell is active. We might see stripes like we saw on one version of the of the wall. We might see big blobs like we saw on the other version of the wall. We might just see a huge mess, you know. And what we actually found was um, we saw blobs, so these focal regions of the space where a cell would be be active, surrounded by um, a region where it wouldn't be. So, so it kind of looks like the cells are very much trying to identify locations in the space where they should be active and then they want to surround that by locations just beyond that where they're not active. It sort of looks like the system was trying to do that. But there was no regularity to the pattern that we could discern and there's quite a lot of variability in the size of the blobs. Um, and a pretty similar finding came out from uh, the bat lab as we call it. <laughs> so Ulanovsky's team in Israel who was studying bats, they, they also found um, that the grid cells and the bats, even though the, the bats could fly smoothly through the space, um, also produced irregular blobs. They actually found a slight difference, which was that the distance between the blobs was not completely random. It was, a, it was more uniform than you would expect by chance, as if the system was trying to preserve those distances. But it was pretty irregular. And, and ours was, as, to the, to the, as far as we could tell, completely irregular. So that made us do a lot of rethinking about what the system is trying to do, because I don't really think that rats or bats are completely confused in a three-dimensional space. Um, I think 
very much like humans moving through, you know, a scuba diver moving through space or a, a rock climber climbing over a wall or, you know, a, a gymnast you know, or whatever. I, I think we are quite good at localizing ourselves in three-dimensional space. But I think that the function of the grid cells is not, and, and this is a personal view, and I'm not sure if anybody but me agrees, so I should say that this, <laughs> this is not what the field thinks. This is what I think. Um, but, but I don't think that the function of grid cells is to produce these evenly spaced firing fields. I feel that the even spacing um, is, a, is a kind of a, a happenstance that arises from the, the somewhat artificial environment that we record the cells in, where the rats are able to move very homogeneously through a wide open space, which doesn't have any obstacles and you know doesn't interrupt its, its path at all. That's kind of an unnatural thing for a rat to do. So I feel like the even spacing that we see, although it's really beautiful, um, is not essential for the system to work. I, th I think what the system is trying to do is to sort of discretize the space, in other words, to break it up into mm -hmm. these chunks that are roughly evenly spaced, but the pre precise characteristics don't matter. So just to pick up on the, the last point you said there about um, whether we can localize ourselves in 3D space, I'm wondering whether are there behavioral effects of the perhaps slightly more irregular um, coding of the third dimension, like would the rodents or humans be worse? At, do, we, do, we, do we have data knowing that they would be worse at localizing themselves in the vertical dimension? There's, there's not very much data uh, for either, either animals or humans. Um, we certainly know that animals and humans can localize themselves quite well in three dimensions, but whether it's as good in, in the mm -hmm. um, vertical dimension or not, it's, it's been slightly hard to tell because um, the, the experiments where, you know, that, that would be comparable where humans can move unobstructedly through the space and in all of the different directions um, have not really been done at the level that, that compares the resolution of that map. And where experiments have been done, like, for example, looking in multi-story buildings and, and how people can localize themselves in, in that type of three-dimensional environment, um, yes, people do get confused. Um, they're more likely to make mistakes about which level they're on and so on. But um, that may be because the, um, the information that's available in the horizontal is different quality from the information that's available in the vertical. So we, don't, we, we haven't really answered that question yet. It's high on my list of, of tasks is to, is to answer that question. Is the resolution the same? Because uh, we might think that the resolution is, is different based on some of our experiments, but based on others of our experiments, we might say it's the same. So hmm. it's an open question. I guess, I guess it's very hard to, um, to control for the natural differences in dimensions. So it's much easier to sort of transition around in a plane. Right? I can walk around in this room and I can go pretty much wherever I want. But just, I guess, because of our built environment, and the way we sort of spend our time, it's much harder for me to transition to the floor below because I have to go specifically to the stairs and go down them. And I suppose that's the, the tricky bit, right? You, you want to separate out what's the innate abilities of the network what experience you've had of the world and indeed create an experiment where you have like a totally sort of asymmetric ability uh, symmetric ability to move around i'm not sure what that even looks like yeah it's quite it's quite an interesting thing to think about um by the way i, I have a, a lot of sympathy with this view that you're having about grid cells saying that you know we've all been potentially been slightly misled by the fact that spatial experiments are typically done in these totally bare i don't know 80 centimeter square boxes and as a result, we have this view of what things look like. 
And, you know, for many good reasons, because we want to sort of, you know, reduce things to their core components and do the experiments in a pure way, we've done these things. But as a result, we've come so far away from uh, the sort of uh, ethologically or naturally valid environments that some of the things we've all become obsessed with might just be <laughs> terrible artifacts <laughs> of the way we've done the experiments. Because it has happened before. I guess it's, yeah. I mean, as a, as a slight outsider to the field that you both are in, do you think that's partly due to the fact that the people have been seduced by the beauty of these patterns, that they are so regular, they look like something, a kind of fundamental fact of nature. And perhaps people have been sucked into thinking that that must be then something to be explained as fundamental. I, 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 do, I do think that that's possible. I mean, I, I need to be careful here <laughs> about, about saying people have been <laughs> you don't, you don't need to be careful, sucked in. I, mean, I, th I think we all as scientists, we have a slight tendency um, when we find um, some phenomenon to assume that the phenomenon has a function. So almost the first question that, that you know, whenever anyone reports something new in a paper is, is what is the function of this thing? And I, I think we have a slight, it's slightly a, a mental reflex. And I think we need to sometimes think, does it even have a function? Um, or, or is it just a byproduct of whatever its function actually is? Is it, is it you know... Maybe not. Maybe artifact is the wrong word, but it's um, that property that's interested you is not the property that's important about the system. I, I think is, is a question that we we need to keep remembering to ask. Um, but yes, I think you know the regularity of the grid cell patterns has really beguiled a lot of um, people because it is so beautiful and and it's it's generated a lot of um, really creative kind of models about how this pattern might come into being. Um, and a lot of them are based on sort of um, engineering systems. So we as human engineers, we have a lot of um, oscillating systems, for example, or, um, you know, systems that have periodic signals of one sort or another. And, you know, the way that we just measure distances and so on. Um, and we don't necessarily know that those are the same things that come to play generating something like a grid cell pattern. Um, so, th so these are questions, you know, exciting questions to be answered, I think. Can I ask about um, when you were mentioning before in your exchange with Caswell about what would happen in higher dimensions and that got me thinking about time because in a way the the animals are in a fourth dimension they're doing these tasks over time and one way of thinking about going in the third dimension is essentially like going around a 2d grid but a bit later in time I mean that's you know when you climb up the stairs of your building you're on the second floor a bit later on than you were on the first floor and on the third floor a bit later on than you were on the second floor so I'm just wondering how that how that is um, I guess accounted for or modelled in. I mean, time is a is a funny thing, and I'm I'm not sure that it's in terms of spatial coding. I'm not sure that we can treat it as just another dimension because you know the thing about time is you can only move um, in one direction in time um, and at a fixed speed <laughs> uh, in, a, in a straight line, yes. essentially. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not true if you're a subatomic particle, but it is true if you're a rat. So mm -hmm. with, with the spatial dimensions, you can trade them off against each other. So, you know, I can walk um, east or I can walk west or I can walk northeast, which is a bit of, you know, um, a bit of north and a bit of east or a bit of north and a bit of west and so on. And so, so there's some trigonometry to be done to work out how far have you walked um, in the in the different directions and, and therefore how do these places all relate. So to be able to do that trigonometry, you need some kind of compass, some kind of reference that, that um, 
that provides fixed points in the plane that against which you can tell which direction you're traveling in that two-dimensional plane. And then when you add a third dimension, as I mentioned before, you, in theory, would need to have a three-dimensional compass if you were going to have a completely volumetric map. And we actually don't have good, good strong evidence that there's a fully three-dimensional compass in the, in the vertebrate brain. Um, although there's certainly some um, vertical information in the head direction system that's been reported by quite a few experiments now, but it doesn't seem to have the same resolution or the same representational um, capacity as, as for the horizontal space. It sort of looks like the brain is mostly interested in what direction you're facing on the horizontal plane. Uh, and then if you go into four dimensions, it's, well, what would you need a four-dimensional compass if you were going to fully represent four dimensions, and, and how, how would that work? So um, I, I feel it's unlikely, but I think it's still a, an open question whether we could have a four-dimensional map, like it was really four space-like dimensions. And I have thought about how you might do this in virtual reality, because virtual reality lets you mess around with things in, in ways that you can't do in real space. <laughs> um, but I, I haven't really thought quite how this would work yet. But it would be really interesting to see whether we had the capacity to learn about a fourth dimension with experience, understanding, you know, that, with that same thing of, uh, of learning about uh, sequences of place cells, for example, in this four-dimensional space. Could you learn to um, understand how those relationships worked in, in four dimensions? I, th I think it would be a, a, a fascinating experiment to try. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And just thinking about the vertical compass, I reminded by, I took my son to watch the Red Arrows display a few months ago, and I was I then bought a book about their training regime and and what they go through, and it's absolutely fascinating, like the precision by which they have to align themselves in three dimensional space, essentially. And I'm wondering whether yeah, taking some red or some aerobatic pilots could be one way of. <laughs> thinking about you know comparing precision along that vertical dimension would be fascinating between experts and, and next novices. funding stream right here i can see it coming yeah, exactly. <laughs> this yeah, one could be fun you need to bring your sick back though maybe <laughs> so kate we've heard loads about um place cell based and head head direction cell based research but how did you get to this point i know uh because i've worked with you you've had a very interesting career and in come to this point. I remember you telling me stories about being a, a junior doctor in various places and working in different countries. What, what, you know, what were the defining steps along the way to being where you are now? Yes, I did. Um, I did start out in a slightly, slightly different direction. You know, I started out in medicine because I knew I was intensely interested in science. Um, particularly biology, but I was growing up in New Zealand, which has a, um, or at least back then it had a very small scientific community. I uh, didn't really know that one could be a scientist <laughs> as a career. I just sort of knew I was interested in science. So I, so I studied medicine. And while I was a medical student, I got introduced to the, to the discipline of behavioral science. Um, and in fact, part of the, that introduction was that I I was able to do an elective in my first year where I could choose anything I wanted to do, and I just chose psychology just kind of randomly. And I just had never heard of psychology, didn't really know that one could study thinking. And when I discovered that one could do this, I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. you know. And so as I was carrying on through my training, I became more and more interested in the science behind thinking and you know, how does the brain generate thoughts and consciousness and so on. And I decided at the end of my training that I wanted to research that and uh, 
not treat sick people, but to actually you know, dig around and find out how the brain works. So I, um, I visited the local neuroscience community in the um, place where I did my training in, in Dunedin in New Zealand. And they were, they, they had a group of very, very active neuroscientists studying this thing called the hippocampus. And I'd never heard of it, except vaguely knew it had something to do with Alzheimer's disease. Um, but they said, come and work with us. So I went to work with them and uh, found myself studying uh, what we now call synaptic plasticity. So the, the ability of neurons in the hippocampus and, and elsewhere to change the, the strength of their connections between them to, to form memories. And I thought this was pretty cool. And mem you know, memories are the building blocks of, of thoughts and, and thinking. And, um, and so at the end of my uh, master's degree, I decided I wanted to carry on doing that. And so um, I tried to find a PhD position and I saw an advertisement in one of the science journals by Richard Morris saying he was looking for a researcher to come and work with him. And that person was supposed to have a PhD and I didn't have a PhD. I only had a master's degree, but I also had a medical degree. And so I thought maybe that will do. <laughs> so I wrote to him from the other side of the world and said, you know, I think what you do is really cool. Can I come work with you? And um, and amazingly, he said, yes, you know, he said, come on over. So, so I went over to work with him and he, um, he was also working on hippocampus, but he was relating it um, to behavior. So he had invented this very famous test of hippocampal function called the Morris water maze. And he was trying to understand how synaptic plasticity underlies the learning that goes on in the water maze. And so I learned how to record um, from freely moving animals in, in challenging situations, you know, in water and so on, um, and to study their behavior and, uh, and it was while I was there that I encountered John O'Keefe and the play cells and um, decided that after my PhD, I really wanted to, to, to kind of come and study the play cells. And I had actually visited um, O'Keefe's lab a couple of times by then. And I mean, I must have been a strange sight the first time I met him because it was on a kind of a, a, a gap year that I had a kind of a, um, a year where I was just doing locums in London and, and I had, it was kind of the post-punk era and I had spiky blonde hair and, and um, <laughs> this really quite aggressive looking Doc Martens. <laughs> I materialized in his office and said, I want to find out how the brain works. <laughs> but he remembered me a few years later when I was in Richard's lab. And so when I, you know, got talking with him, he had a space for a postdoc. And uh, so I went to work with him. Um, and um, yeah, the rest sort of took off from there. Amazing. It was meant to be. It's, it's amazing how many people we talk to who say that they didn't really know that psychology as a field existed or that the study of the mind as a, as a science existed. And I, I always think the more we hear this, I always think that psychology must be doing a really bad PR job. Um, and <laughs> I don't know whether that's still the case, but it certainly seemed to have been the case um, a few years ago. Yeah, I think it took a while to get going. And one of the, I mean, one of the really big instigators of that was Donald Hebb um, mm. at McGill. And the... Um, so, so, you know, O'Keefe had worked with him, and so had Graham Goddard in Otago, um, who was the person that I was meant to go and do my master's with. Actually, tragically, he was, he was killed in a hiking accident, and so I, I went to work with um, his, his colleague, Cliff Abraham. But I think Hebb was really kind of, um, in many ways, responsible for, for the bringing together of psychology and neuroscience in, in such a strong form. Mm -hmm. You know, he kind of seeded this right across the world. And, um, and I think it's... Certainly those two disciplines have come together a lot now. So um, I think most psychology departments have some neuroscientists in them, which certainly wasn't the case when I started out. 
Um, and now we're starting to see, um, you know, departments like the one that I'm, I'm now in, where um, where they're aiming for a kind of an even balance, like trying trying to really strongly bring these two things together, which I think is is great because I like to I like to be able to see the continuity of explanations that goes from molecules all the way up to mm. thinking and consciousness and these really really ephemeral things that I just think it's really cool if we can explain how to get all the way through those levels from one end to the other. So maybe we can ask you about the new role, Kate. So you've just been appointed as the head of School of Psychology and Neuroscience at Glasgow University. And I'm wondering what your thoughts at this stage, just going into that, are about the challenges of creating a vision around this intersection. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really exciting project. It's, it's like a um, a grand version of the one that I undertook in at UCL when I created the, the Institute of Behavioral Neuroscience, which is a, um, you know, a neuroscience research group within a psychology department, essentially. So this is like that, that same thing, but at a much bigger scale. And it's a, it's a school that's been formed from the amalgamation of um, neuroscientists do, doing you know, pretty biological research, a lot of it in, in spinal cord and like very, very sort of cellular kind of um, what you might call low-level neuroscience, very biological. Uh, wetware is another word for it. Um, um, so, so people people doing that, and and then uh, quite a lot of cognitive neuroscientists who are studying the human brain using various kinds of um, imaging. Um, so, you know, functional uh, neuroimaging and EEG recording, um, some electrophysiology, um, and um, magnetic stimulation techniques, uh, MEG. So, all of these ways of interacting with the human brain. So. So there was that on the one hand, and then um, a, um, a strong community of um, more uh, pure psychology, you might call it that. So, so people who are really studying behavior, including things like language and, and um, you know, social cognition and so on. Um, so these two things have been um, brought together um, under the umbrella of the unit of assessment four and the, and the research um, you know, excellence framework where psychology and neuroscience um, clearly you know, are, are treated as a single discipline. So it made sense to create this unit within the university as well. And they really wanted somebody who um, could could speak to both of those communities, the neuroscience community and the psychology community, and and fill in the gap in the middle. Essentially, that's that's how I kind of see it. Um, so it's quite challenging because it is a big gap, and, and trying to get people on either side of that gap um, to um, feel that the gap is crossable and that they want to cross it is, is kind of um, the challenge. Um, but everybody is very excited about the challenge. I've had huge positive response to um, to the idea that we um, we would like to recruit in that gap to to kind of um, build a community of people who are studying um, biology, so you know animal research, but in a way that links to both the neuroscience and the psychology. So really, really spans all of those explanatory gaps and uses a lot of cool technology and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, and at the same time, we're trying to build up the teaching program to, to also close that gap so that our neuroscience students can learn some psychology if they want and our psychology students can learn some neuroscience. And perhaps in future, we'll, we'll even have a, a neuroscience and psychology degree program, possibly in the future. That's still to be decided. But um, yeah, so it's really challenging, but um, exciting and um, really kind of, looking forward to the challenge. And do you think bringing these things together, do you think that sort of brings into focus the challenge of delivering something at the at the sort of far end? I mean, certainly sort of much of sort of the history of the, at least the neuroscience I've worked in is sort of research for research's sake. But I know 
people, including yourself, increasingly thinking about, you know, what what are the impacts we can make on people's lives? Like these these technologies and ways of thinking are, are now mature, um, and we should be able to be thinking in terms of translation and what it means and how we can sort of offset dementia or, or whatever. Is there is that part of the picture here, or, or what do you think about that? Is it time for those sorts of realizations? Yeah, very very much so. I think there's always a balance to be struck between trying to solve real world problems and trying to solve what some people call blue sky problems, you know, that, um, that don't seem to have any real world applications. Like, you know, the, how did the universe begin? That type of thing. It doesn't seem to have any practical um, application because it's understood that, um, that the technological advances that ultimately um, produce real world applications began with just straight out curiosity, you know, how does this thing work type of thing. And, you know, electricity was discovered not because we were looking for energy, but because we were trying to understand the structure of matter and so on. Um, so, so there's always a, that balance to be struck. Um, but, but I find myself increasingly as I go on in my career wanting to feel that the stuff that we've dug up um, about how the universe works, you know, how the brain works and so on, um, could have some practical application so that the taxpayers have paid for it getting something back <laughs> so you know you, you are making a, a change in real people's lives because we've got this knowledge now and we can use it so we should use it um so so in the um domain of spatial cognition we have learned a lot now about how the brain does create an, an understanding of space for the animal and i th I, th I think it's well past time to deploy our, our knowledge of that to um to try and create spaces that can be understood better than the spaces that, that we sometimes create. So, so my big bugbear is very, very complex, large buildings like hospitals or conference centers or train stations or, or something that um, are hopelessly confusing. Um, and even, even ordinary buildings just can be confusing for some people. So some people find themselves um, distressingly disoriented in normal everyday situations because they, they, they just don't understand. They're not able to build a mental map of the space that makes them feel confident that they understand where things Ah. Um, and I think now that we understand about the, you know, the head direction system and, and its importance um, and the, um, the grid cell system and, and you know, the, the involvement of distances and directions and the role of boundaries and how spaces are kind of joined together in our large scale map and so on. Um, now that we're starting to understand how these things happen, I think we could be using that information to help architects and urban planners and designers and, and so on. So I've become um, increasingly involved with those communities and I've been talking a lot to architects. Um, partly, I think, because I developed a, a love of architecture from building architecturally strange apparatus for my rats. <laughs> I always found that you know, one, of the, one of the things I loved about doing those experiments is I just, I just really love building these strange things. And you know, there's, a, there's an aesthetic pleasure in, in building a structure um, that has a three-dimensional form. You know. um, so, so on a large scale, you know, structure of a building, I, I really love buildings, I love architecture, and, and I would love to be able to help architects create um, navigable architecture as well as um, simply aesthetically pleasing architecture. So that's, that's kind of um, the mission for, for me going forward. Okay, so we're almost out of time. It's been an absolutely fantastic discussion, and we wish you all the best, Kate, in the new role in Glasgow. Um, but before we wrap up, um, we, as regular listeners will know, we like to ask each of our guests the same question, and we're going to ask you the same question now. So what is your favorite facts that you've encountered about the brain? 
Ah, <clears throat> I knew you were going to ask this question, and, and I actually have two. Am I allowed two? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> or does it have to be one? Do I have yeah, to choose between okay. them? <laughs> no, no, we'll let you have two. I feel like it's a bit like that thing at the end of Desert Island Disc when people be... want more than one item. We'll let you have two for that. Go on. <laughs> okay, one, one's, a, one's a small scale one and one's a large scale one. And if you, if you feel it's unfair, you can chop one out. But um, So the small scale one is that I, I learned, but I did some reading into the evolution of um, brains, how brains came about from the, you know, the, the precursor kind of ancient life. And I discovered that um, all of the proteins that go to make up um, synapses um, in neurons, so you know the um, specialized connections between neurons, are actually present in sponges, even though sponges don't have nervous systems. So you know the postsynaptic density proteins, so all of those things, NMDA receptors and so on, all of the stuff is present in sponges. So before nervous systems came along. So I think that's an amazing mm, That is fact. amazing. What, I wouldn't, yeah. what are they doing in the sponges? That's what I need to know. I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a really important question. But we know, I mean, we know that evolution, you know, reuses and recycles. It's, you know, very, um, if you've got a complex molecule, um, then why not use it for something, even if it's different from what you first built it for, I guess. <laughs> um, but that's, I think that's cool. My other, my large scale favorite fact is that um, that dolphins sleep with one half of their brain at a time, and, and I think quite a lot of um, constantly mobile animals do, and I think that's amazing. And what what must the inner experience of a dolphin be like? Um, and you know, how, how does that happen? I think that's, that's that's a cool, interesting fact as well. That's fantastic. I I imagine it feels like me before I had my coffee in the morning is what I imagine it feels <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, we need to check whether Caswell is sleeping with half of his brain at a time. Which half? Been doing it all along. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was fantastic. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us uh, on this episode of Brain Stories. And um, to our listeners, we'll see you next time. In the interim, we'd like to thank uh, Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking brain stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast. Patrick Robinson, UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. Follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes. <laughs>